Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good morning. It is Friday, March 22nd, and uh, as usual, another glorious day here in Tampa, Florida. This is Chickie Fitzgerald the founder of the Executive Girlfriends Group, and welcome to Egg Live. We have a very, very different show uh, scheduled today since we are talking primarily to the corporate executive uh, audience and particularly to the female corporate executive. Uh, We are breaking a little bit from our normal business topics uh, to talk about being healthy from the inside out. And our show is called One Size Fits All, Making Healthy Choices and Stepping into a Meaningful Life. And our guest this morning is Michelle Howe. Michelle, welcome. Hi, Chicky. It's nice to be with you today. Well, it is terrific to have you. And you uh, have actually written a book called One Size Fits All, Making Healthy Choices. Excuse me, I normally turn my phone off and forgot to do that today. Okay, anyway, let's uh, reboot there. You have written a book called One Size Fits All, Making Healthy Choices, Stepping into a Meaningful Life. And uh, Michelle, I like to start our shows by having you uh, not jump into the book right away, but to tell us a little bit about Michelle. Okay, well, you know, I've been in the publishing business for about 25 years. I started as a book reviewer uh, before, you know, before I had children, which is 26 years ago, I worked in a small public relations firm. And then when I came home, I started working from home, and I have been doing that ever since. And I just love it because of the flexibility and the creativity. It just suits my life. But I've been reviewing books for years and years and years. And then in 1999, I started really writing for single moms because two of my best friends became single moms, not by their choice. They were both subject to unwanted divorces. And I started telling their story, you know, going through what they did well, what they didn't do well. And they just they just shared their lives with me. And that was like the, my first three books. It was all about single parenting, what works and what doesn't. And then I started uh, getting more into parenting topics because I have four adult children now and two grandchildren, and that kind of consumed my writing for years. And then as I hit midlife, boy, did everything change. Um, in 2005, <laughs> I, um, I've always been real fit and healthy. I used to be a runner, and I always walk, and I, you know, I watch what I eat, and I'm you know, all about that stuff. But in 2005, I started needing shoulder surgeries, so between 2005 and 2011, I had six shoulder surgeries to keep repairing an ongoing problem that it still is not repaired. I have a problematic shoulder issue that have tissues that keep getting loose, so every time the surgery would fix them, they'd loosen up again. And what that means to me is I'm in pain every day. I'm in chronic mm-hmm. pain. There's a lot of things I can't do anymore, um, or my shoulders could literally pop out. So, you know, it changed my life from being somebody who took her health for granted and then, you know, you age, you go through menopause, and there's all of a sudden there's restrictions. And I hated it, and I had a real hard time going through it at first. So I I wrote a book with my orthopedic surgeon uh, three years ago, and we just tackled every bit of 
anything a, a midlife woman could go through. Well, that book, you know, is here and gone. And then after that, I, I decided, you know, I still haven't said everything that I think I need to say about growing older, being a professional woman, wanting to be engaged in every part of my life, and, and aging healthy, and how important it is to take care of our bodies, our minds, our emotions, our spirits, in order to be, you know, whole women who, who can be vocationally successful, personally successful. And it, it all came down to me, it, it, it's all about choices, our small choices, our big choices, they matter. Every one of them matters. So this book is kind of a play on words because we all know that one size doesn't fit all. Right. But the, the the thing that does fit in that theme is that everybody has choices to make. Men and women, children, everyone has choices to make. And the choices we make determine the quality of our life. Can we control everything? No, we can't control very much. But we can make wise choices every day that put us in a better path. So that's what this book is all about, looking at our lives, you know, from every different perspective, personal, professional, you know, you know, physical, how we eat, how we sleep, kind of meds we take, what kind of friendships we have, what kind of um, parenting or grandparenting we do. You know, it, it, it covers everything in and and small sound bites just so that, you know, busy women that we all are can just absorb a little bit of encouragement and some thoughtful uh, healthy steps every day. Well, and and I love that you just shared when, uh, the format of the book because uh, it's one of the things that I normally comment on. Uh, you know, we've got uh, both extremes. Uh, a couple of weeks ago we had an author who, you know, the average length of the chapter I think was 75 pages. And, you know, oh. I don't, uh, don't know that I could, uh, you know, actually devote that kind of time to a single sitting. I, I love to read. And, uh, you know, I've got so many books on my bookshelf that I want to go back and read thoroughly. And unfortunately, uh, you know, I do two radio shows a week and, you know, typically uh, with interviewing an author. And I don't have time to read two full books a week. But, you know, there are some that just pop out to me that would just be nice to have close by. And, you know, your average chapter length is two or three pages, which, uh, as you said, it, you know, it's easily digestible and doesn't have to necessarily be read sequentially. Is that correct? Yeah, and that's another, I really purposely wrote the book this way that you could pick up any chapter, go to the table right. of contents, pick it up, find what you're struggling with, find what you want to know what more information about, whatever it is, and in five to ten minutes you can be done. And I had, I, I lead a women's group and on Thursday mornings and one of the gals was reading the book and she really warmed my heart because she said, I'm so busy and I hate picking up new books, but she said, your newest book is so great because the chapters are, are short. And I said, are they too short? She said, no, no, they're not too short. They're just what I need because it's a good pick-me-up. It's a good refocusing on what matters at the beginning of the day. And I said, good, because you know you got to get that balance. You want to give people enough, enough meat to really chew on but not so much that they look at something and say, well, I don't have time to read 30 pages before I go to work. Right, right. absolutely. Well, I love how you, you start off talking about attitude, and you actually tell the story of uh, going to give blood. And, you know, I, I have this recurring thought, too, that I can never remember what my blood type is. Um, I, I do remember that my husband's is be negative, and it's like, no, don't be negative. 
and so you're you're trying to go back and forth whether you're O positive or O negative. So you know you're setting the stage uh, for this book of really talking about the role that our attitude plays. So just give us a little snapshot of that. Yeah, you know that to me that that's another reason why the O positive was the first chapter in the book because as a book reviewer, I'm paid to be critical. I mean, I'm paid to look at a manuscript and find a flaw. That's what we're paid to do. And people don't like to hear that, but really you're paid to look at the weaknesses, to find them, to point them out, and also the positives. But when you're trained to always find fault, it can really spill over into your life. And my husband will often say, you're not working here. And I'm like, right. okay, okay, you're right. Or, you know, if I see a movie, I'm always I'm always queuing in on how could they make it better? How could they have done this and that? And so I, I've tried to have a lot of comedy throughout this book, too, because oftentimes what we do so well at work doesn't transfer well at home. It really doesn't. I and mean, we can be great and have very good technical skills, and we're really super intelligent and great problem solvers. But, you know, sometimes we need to ease back in our personal life and realize we're not at work all the time. And I think that's one thing I like to encourage women is, you know, men have an ability to compartmentalize that I wish women had more of. At least I wish I could at times because I wish I could come home and say, you know what, it doesn't matter that this was this was my work day. Today, tonight, this evening can be positive. It can be good. It can be um really uplifting and, and I'm the I'm the person that's gotta make that happen. I've got to make right. that switch. Well I I'm glad you brought that up, Michelle, because the the actual genesis of the Executive Girlfriends group was uh exactly that. Uh every Friday afternoon um I, I had been going through a very, very difficult business startup and the subsequent close down uh of that business and every Friday I would call uh one of my best friends in Dallas and she was a, a a business girlfriend, uh, you know, who we've just gotten to be very, very close on all levels, but our relationship started from a business perspective. And, you know, I told her I needed a way to kind of talk myself down on my way home. And at the time, we had an office, and so I did have to get in the car and drive home. Um, and, and so we ended up uh, talking about how this was actually a really good idea for everybody to kind of tra- transition from the business you to the personal you so that you can be uh, responsive uh, to whether it's to kids or husbands or boyfriends or, you know, whatever whatever situation you're in. And so we started the Executive Girlfriends Group, strangely enough, on National Girlfriends Day uh, in 2008. And that was not by design, but I had to laugh when I went back and saw that on the calendar. Um, and, and so the we used to have the show at 4 o'clock on Fridays, and as I mentioned earlier, we, we had a bunch of people who would call in because we'd use the time to you know listen to the speaker and then to talk about the high point and sometimes the low point in our week. Um, and since then, I now work at home, and you were talking about loving working at home. And I, I do love the flexibility it gives me, but boy, is it hard to do any compartmentalization. <laughs> I will agree with you because I have worked at home for so many years. Um, I have always been a list maker, you know, so I get up and in my head I know what I'm going to get through and I work through it. But still, as, as disciplined and organized as I am just naturally by my personality type, 
I look at the kitchen when I walk through it to get to my office, and I don't like any dishes on the counter, so I'm putting them in. I mean, you know, you're stopping along the way yes. to do a lot of different things, and you can very easily get uh, unfocused and distracted and deciding to do <laughs> ten <think>? other things <laughs> before you get to the work you need to do. Um, however, I still love it. It works for me, but I know that a lot of women, a lot of my friends say I could never work from home. I couldn't do it because I would be constantly attending to this or attending to that and I wouldn't get my work done. So that's, I guess it's a good thing that we're all different and we can all, you know, fit into different situations so well. Right, right. Well, I'm going to jump around a little bit uh, because you do touch on so many different topics. And uh, I'm, I'm going to jump to Chapter 5 of, of Family History. It's more predictive than you might expect. Uh, last night I had a, a, a new girlfriend over uh, for dinner, and we were sitting and talking about this because I've got a, a son that we adopted from Russia when he was 3. He's now going to be uh, 13. And then we were talking about my daughter, who is my natural daughter, but she was conceived through donor insemination. So uh, she's got kind of this bit of unknown family history uh, as well. So, you know, her her father, uh, my husband, uh, his medical history and his family history doesn't really impact her. Uh, well, I, I'll say his family history does because his behavior <laughs> certainly uh, rubs <laughs> off on her. But But talk to me about family history because we were talking about the relative importance of the medical side of things and you know versus the uh kind of the nurture uh side of of the family history. Yeah, you know, you make a really good point too and I have uh, a number of friends who have adopted kids and it's been interesting to me to watch them try to search out the the birth parents medical histories because they've had you know, challenges as far as when your kids get sick and some right. unusual things, you know, and it is. It is a challenge, so I really applaud you in that part. Uh, yeah, you know, my orthopedic surgeon pointed out something to me when I started having recurring tissue problems. He said, well, what about your parents? What about your mom? And we went way back, and no one in my family had this, so I'm, I'm the first, so that wasn't helpful. But he got me thinking about how important family history was, and he said, you know, genetics play such a huge part to age successfully and age well. He said they really do. And he said, you know, oftentimes you'll have female patients who come in and say, well, I'm nothing like my mom. I'm nothing like my aunts or my cousins or whatever, my siblings, because, you know, I weigh different or, I, you know, I exercise, I eat right. And he said, that's great and you need to do all those things, but heredity and genetics is still a key player in how you're going to age. And if your mom has osteoporosis, you have a significant risk in that area. You need to be watching for it. That's why we want to do a next scan, you know, maybe every five years to make sure you're not going down that road so we can address it right away. You know, and he gets women to think about that so they look at it from their whole their whole right. perspective. And I'm trying to teach my kids, you know, even they're in their early 20s, this is what's in our family, this is what you have to watch out for. You guys are young, you're all healthy, but the tendency is here for this, this, and this to happen, so be careful. So I think, you know, when you're feeling good, you think, oh, I can beat the world. Before you get one thing that happens in your body that starts not going right, right. and then you start seeing how they all connect together, and you really need to know, you know what kind of family you came from. Right. Well, the interesting thing is uh, a couple of years ago my sister 
who is in a, you know a very academic job in in a uh, a university that does a lot of medical research. Um, she sent both of my kids uh, a kit from a company called 23andMe, and they do very simple, you know, saliva-based DNA testing. And I thought, well, how interesting for my kids who, you know, my son, we, we know some basic information about his, his birth mother, but nothing about his birth father. And, you know, my daughter, we know what the donor filled out in the paperwork, but we don't really know. Um, and and so I get regular reports on, you know, uh, people who are uh, third and fourth cousins to both of my kids, and we never know where, where that relationship actually comes from because there's so many possibilities on my daughter's side. And, and uh, you know, I, I wondered whether we'd get any information about my son because of being from Russia. But it's, it's very, very interesting uh, to, to look at that. So I, I found it interesting that you did uh, make a point of looking at that uh, in the book. So let's jump to another uh, topic. And again, uh, your your book uh, really covers such a wide range. So this is going to sound a little bit disjointed, perhaps, to our listeners. But I, I know that you pull it all together. So the next one uh, that I want to talk about is is uh, Chapter 8, The Anatomy of Listening Effectively. So we've, we've talked about attitude. We've talked about, you know, your your family and, and, you know, how that kind of contributes to your overall health and well-being. So uh, now we're going to talk about uh, something that is a, a proactive skill that you actually have to learn. Yeah, you know, I really, this is one of my favorite chapters, and I'm going to tell you why. I, I think because I've been a writer for so many years and a reviewer, I tend to be introspective, a people watcher, kind of watching what's going on, you know, around me. And I always thought I was really a good listener um, just because I guess people bring me their problems and I figure, well, they wouldn't bring me, bring me their problems if they didn't think I could help if I didn't listen well. But when I, I started reading this book about the eighth habit, all about listening well, and I realized what a poor listener I was. And the author in in this particular book said that there's like, there's five different levels of listening, and rarely does anyone reach the fifth level, which is what I aspire to do now that I'm aware of it. But the first is, you know, we listen to somebody and we're ignoring them. And, you know, that, that happens probably quite often. You get busy and you're kind of not really hearing. The second level is pretend listening. What he calls is also patronizing. Like, you're listening, but you're really not. I mean, you might be looking at the person, but you're not attending to what they're really saying to you. <laughs> or selective listening, which would be what my husband would say I do. I selectively listen to him, but I try to be better than that. Attentive listening is probably what we do with our good friends. You know, they bring us something and we really are listening. But the fifth level is really interesting. It's called empathetic listening. And that means we have to transcend our own personal experience, our own background, our own um, present moment, and really get in somebody else's shoes. And I wonder how often do any of us really do that. Mm. And I think if we are honest, it's hard work to do that. Because often when someone's talking, we're ready to jump in with either are we disagreeing or are we agreeing or what's the thing that we want to add to this conversation this author will say those are all hindrances to really be empathetically listening to somebody is to just pay total attention to them and really see, you know, what are they facing, you know, emotionally, financially, socially, you know, what are they doing in their professional world, what, what is the core in their gut right now that's really hurting 
and that they're trying to communicate to you and put, you know, put that, that pit they're feeling inside of yourself so that you can respond in a way that really brings some healing and some perspective to them. Right. And, you know, I, I find it so interesting, and I don't know whether this is a male-female difference in communication or whether it's just something I experience in my own family, that, you know, when you do go into that rare moment where you're willing to talk about pain in your own life or something, uh, you know, that was difficult, when the other person automatically responds with, oh, well, my week was really bad, you know, and, and you know, jumps right back into themselves, Um you know, I, I think that sometimes fosters that kind of communication with, without really, um, you know, taking the time of somebody who naturally responds that way to say, listen, I don't do this very often, but I really need you to hear me. Uh, you know, and I, I don't know if you address that uh, in, in this section of the book, but um, I, and maybe because I do so much interviewing, I really do try to listen. I, I probably am a, a, a four uh, listener most of the time, but uh, getting to that five place um, is, is something I have to work on also asking other people to do for me since, again, it, you know, it's fairly rare that I get to that level of, of opening up. Well, you know, and you're in the book, I do I do cite some points here, too, to get to that five, and it, it's, one of the points is people react to new information based on their previous experiences and personal yes. history. And I thought, you know, when I read that, I thought, you know, it's really true because we're so different. We're such a product of the kind of home we grew up in. Whether we like it or not, we are a product of our history. You know, what kind of education we had, what kind of, you know, uh, lives we lead professionally, what kind of school we went to, what kind of friends we have what kind of country we're from. I mean, we really are products of that. And, and to say, oh, no, we're not, is, is naive, and it really isn't true. Right. And uh, another point was there's always multiple ways to interpret information, and you have to keep that in the mental forefront of every conversation just because, you know, we all communicate differently. And some people take the back door into a real serious topic. Some people burst right through the front door, <laughs> slamming it as they go. But we're all different. And if we can remove ourselves enough emotionally, and I know that doesn't sound like you can do both at once, but I think you can, that you're really attentive to what someone's saying and what they're not saying by how they're talking to you and what their their face is telling you, I think we learn so much that we're pretty much all alike on the inside but we live it out differently. Exactly. Well, and and that level of of transparency and willingness to show that I think is is the other thing in our culture that uh you talked about men being more naturally compartmental. Um this particular group, the executive girlfriends group, part of its foundation was that we could be completely transparent. We could shift from a conversation about business and then talk about uh, how it triggered something emotionally that actually came from the private side of our life, or we had a fight with our spouse, or our you know we yelled at our children before we walked into a business meeting, and you know and it, it really pulled us away from what we needed to be focused on. And you know with that, I want to kind of shift to chapter 15, which I, I think is is uh, very closely tied to what we were just talking about, and that is emotional triggers, those happy and sad feelings that we all experience, and and how they color uh, our reactions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this too really hit me. Really hit me in midlife because it, you know, I had this this 
little strange idea, and I don't know where I got it from as I was parenting, that once my kids turned 18, my primary parenting responsibility would be over and it would get easier. And <laughs> I have really found it just the opposite. And I'm going to say why, because I love my kids. I'm involved in their lives in, in a great way, and I think at some level we're friends now. I mean, I'm always going to be the mom, but we're friends, and I enjoy their company. However, little people have little problems, and big people have big problems. And when your kids are no longer coming to you saying, John, to hurt my feelings, they're saying, you know, I don't know what to do with my life. I can't find a job. I don't know if college is right for me. Someone so broke my heart. You know, or they have, a, you know, a problem physically or a super big problem financially, all of a sudden, they're in your world, too. I mean, as, as peers and as adults. And those problems are big. And you know what? When it happens to your adult kids, you look at it and go, okay, you kind of relive it. If you're a mom, you relive going through it yourself some years ago, or maybe you're still going through it. But what, what hit me was emotional triggers can be good things and they can be bad things. I mean, it can be planning a wedding can emotionally trigger depression in some women because it's so over-encompassing planning a wedding, and it's so costly. And there's so much that society tells us we have to do, which I would hope most women are smarter than to go along with the crowd. But, you know, it's hard. Pressure comes from society, and you get pressure from your kids because they think they should have what society is telling them, or I should say media is telling them they should have. Right. So it was really a, an eye-opening experience to me when I realized that I was feeling stressed out at a lot of the good things that was happening around me. It wasn't just bad things. It might have been planning a vacation, you know, or getting a new book contract was a great thing for me. But then it added in, you know, a whole new level of time commitment and energy and researching. So I started seeing, hey, you know what, I've got to look at all of life and everything that happens, the good and the bad, is potentially um, events that can take me under if I'm not careful. So, I mean, I tried to step back and just realizing it helped me, and it made me a lot more cautious about how many things I'm involved in, how many times I say yes when I know I should be saying no, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. So trying to bring some um, wiggle room into my life has made a big difference. Well, with that, I want to transition. It happens to be the next chapter, but I was going to pick it even if it wasn't, uh, which is number 16, about the anatomy of a strength, why you should keep doing what you do best. And, you know, in my life, I, I'm a serial entrepreneur. If I don't have three or four things going on uh, at one time, my friends would wonder what was wrong with me. But of late, I've been trying to figure out what I can weed out and, and those things that, you know, kind of keep popping in the forefront you know, I generally stick with those. And, and uh, you know, you talk here about doing what you do best. And, and obviously you have to know what it is that you do best and you have to know what that strength is. Uh, so talk to me a little bit ab about that particular chapter. Well, this this chapter grew out of a book that I read titled The Anatomy of a Strength. And it was by uh, written by... Marcus Buckingham and Donald Clifton, and I thought it was really great. And the first question that they pose in their book is, what does a strong life look like? And then they, they answer that question all throughout the book. But what they're telling you is most of society, mo most companies will instruct their employees to work on their weaknesses, work on strengthening your weaknesses, and that almost every person that you employ can be confident in almost everything 
and they spent some 300 pages saying that's so untrue. They said, you know, each person is unique and different with different gifts, different talents, different bents, and people would be better. Companies would be more successful, more profitable if they put, if they placed into their system the whole mentality that people should do what they're gifted at. You know, you don't take an accountant and ask him to become a creative director. You know, you let him stick with the numbers. He loves the numbers. He's good at the numbers. He's great with that. And you don't take a creative director and say, stick him in with a bunch of tax forms and say, figure this out for us. I mean, they right. might be able to be competent because a lot of us are competent in a lot of areas. Most women are pretty competent. They just take on things. They have to do it, and you learn to do it because you need to. But when you love to do something, then you shine because you know what your passion comes through. And for you, that's being an entrepreneur. And, you know, you're just great at it. And, you know, some people would just be scared stiff at taking the <laughs> risks that you take. But you right. thrive there, you know. I mean, and I think that's another reason why you look at people and you, you, have, to, you have to see what their bent is. And they, they will tell you. And, and sometimes women will say, well, I don't know what I'm good at. And I said, you know, one thing you can, one way, one gauge that's pretty much foolproof is when people come to you and say, thank you for doing this. Thank you for encouraging me. Thank you for writing that. Thank you for taking on that project. And then look at the skills required to do whatever that person is expressing appreciation and gratitude to you for. And therein lies something you're good at. And then you have to ask, do I love doing it? Did my heart thing when I was doing it? Did it make me sore? And if it is, then you have kind of an idea of what right. area you should be heading into. Yeah, I'm laughing because I use uh, in my consulting uh, with with teams and team building, uh, I use something called the love, hate, do well, do badly grid. And we put a big butcher block on uh, paper on the wall and, and draw this grid and then each person takes all the things that have to be done, whether it's in their company or in their department, uh, you know, in their work group, and, and everybody gets the same set of stickers that have the same tasks. So, you know, financial planning, presentations, you know, et cetera. And they put it with their initials on it in one of those uh, uh, grid sectors. So love, hate, do well, do badly. And then they take a red and a green circle sticker and put whether it uh, energizes them or drains them because it's possible to love something and do it well and still have it drain you. And so that's something you can do occasionally but not every day. So sure. I was just laughing because that's so on target with what what, uh, what I use uh, in my own consulting practice. So I'm going to jump ahead a little bit just because the title of this one intrigues me and it's not intuitively obvious what it's about. So you can just tell me, my weekly coffee date with Mike uh, my weekly coffee date with Mike, well, that grew out of, uh, I was babysitting actually for my daughter when she was still working at a hospital, so I had one day a week with my little infant grandson, and I I just decided, you know, I was there for hours, he was a newborn, he would sleep a lot through the afternoon, and so I did have some time to myself where I would take my laptop and I would do some work, and I, I talked about this as, it, it kind of, this is another comical chapter where I took something out of the movie Monsters, Inc., and it was Mike, the one right. cartoon character, and she, my daughter had a coffee mug. So I would get a great, i get that mug out every week, and I'd get the best coffee they had in a Keurig, and then I'd pour cream into it, and then I kind of expound upon, well, I could have 
to drinking water or coffee, black, whatever. But I said it's always important to do something for yourself, something you enjoy, some treat, some special thing. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was drinking that coffee with a lot of cream in it, and I loved it. And then I went on to, in the chapter, just that daily habits are important. And you know what? If you don't do a few things that you really love, and you're going to binge on all the things you shouldn't do, and your life's going to go down, 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 down. You're going to give up right. on, you know, everything. So what I did in this chapter, the health part of this chapter, was just habits of self-control that give you control. And I think, as I say in the chapter, you've got to be kind to yourself. I mean, I know that I shouldn't eat breads and sweets, but I am a chocolate lover. So, you know, I give myself a little bit of chocolate, dark chocolate, every day because I know if I don't, I'm going to be heading down the grocery aisle to those double stuff Oreos and getting a whole package and coming home and eating way too many over the, you know, the course of three or four days. And I think that's just tricks women can learn. You know, little things, little choices make a big difference. A little piece of chocolate isn't going to hurt me. Having my coffee with half and half or whole cream isn't going to hurt me. But if I go and resist for so long things that I love, and I think that food is put on earth for us to enjoy, and it's one of right. our greatest senses, you know, to eat something that's delicious, and we, and it's a social thing too. So, you know, I think that we have to have balance in all things and not be not be so strict or so, um, I don't even know what the word is, so denying of some things that we love that we get tired of it because we're starved. We're emotionally right. starved that we go in the other direction. So this chapter is kind of funny, kind of light, but at the end it gives you some good ideas of what to do each day to keep yourself more healthy. Well, the next one, I, I'm actually going to have you comment on two at once. We're going to go backwards and forwards. Uh, chapter 19 is fe feeling pulled in every direction. And then uh, the subtitle here is with a little help from your friends. And chapter 29 uh, is everyone needs a helping hand. And in my life, uh, you know, I am so fortunate. Uh, you know, it, it really has taken a village to raise my children from, you know, we were fortunate to have a live-in nanny uh, when they were younger because I traveled all the time. And my husband was Mr. Mom for over a decade. And, and Patty, who's also my executive producer, lives across the street with my 91-year-old uh, mother-in-law, and she helps out whenever we need uh you know someone to pick up the kids if i can't and and uh, but because i'm a serial entrepreneur and always doing so much i also do feel pulled in every direction so those two things naturally fit together for me so mm -hmm. talk to me about those two chapters as as we uh bring our our interview to a close well you know the the, the first chapter chapter 19 feeling pulled in every direction i don't know a woman who doesn't feel that way most of the time because it just seems like People have needs. People in your life that you love and care about have needs, and they're ongoing. And this is a hard world. It seems like someone's always losing a job or transitioning to a new city or getting a divorce or getting married or something. But it's always a transition, so life is always changing. And the people that we care about and love, whether they're work associates or neighbors or family members, you know, we... We care about them, and so you feel pulled in every direction. But this first chapter talks a lot about choosing your friends wisely, mm -hmm. you know, watching the people in your life, and before you invest in them emotionally and deeply, you know, watch how they treat other people. You know, always kind of keeping in your mind that how they treat and talk about other people is how they're going to treat and talk about you. 
you learn a lot despite watching. You know, I mean, everybody has bad days, and we all blow it and make mistakes and have, have to ask for forgiveness and, you know, reconcile. But, you know, you can watch people just silently, you know, not make a huge study of it. But I really encourage my kids, you know, that, you know, look at, look at who your friends are because you're going to become them. If you don't like who your friends are, the direction they're heading with their life, then you need to ease back from that friendship or even end it. So that chapter is really about being wise about, you know, the people we bring close to us because they're going to affect us. Right. Even if we feel, even if we're the kind of woman, and I get in this position where I think, I just want to help them, I just want to help them. Well, that's fine, but then that, my relationship to that woman is a mentoring relationship. It's not a peer relationship. So there's a differentiation. And then at 29, everyone needs a helping hand. I wrote this because I went to Venice, Italy a few years ago, and I looked at this beautiful painting, and it was about a man, a muscular, you know, scaffold worker, and he was falling off this scaffold, and this angelic being was catching him. It was a great Italian art. But I remember looking at it and thinking, everybody needs a helping hand. Every one of us does. And just like your story, you know, we all have so many people around us who helped us get where we're at. You know, and, and maybe the people, maybe we feel like we haven't had a lot of support, but if we're really honest, all of us have been the recipients of a lot of good turns and a lot of um, uh, generosity by people over the years. And it just, it really hit me that, you know, we all need a helping hand. And I wrote this chapter because I thought, you know, we become like those we associate with and we want to give back. So this chapter kind of about, you know, realizing we're all vulnerable, and in our society, you know, it's primary to be independent, but yet we're social beings. We're not meant to be, you know, isolated from one another. So this is about encouraging camaraderie, encouraging support amongst women, you know, and not the jealousy and the competition. I mean, there's so much of that. And I often look at relationships with people who are strained, and I think, boy, if those two could just work through their differences, they would be such a great team. They both have so much to offer, but they're not right. willing. They're not willing to let that relationship get that far. Right. Well, Michelle, there is just so much meat in this book. I mean, we could probably spend a couple of hours uh, uh, talking through each of the different chapters, but uh, what I want to encourage our listeners to do, of course, is to actually go and buy your book. Uh, Again, the name of the book is One Size Fits All. The cover, uh, for those of you who are shoe lovers, is uh, a bunch of different pairs of shoes, uh, which... um, uh, is just a great visual for this. But the book is about making healthy choices, not just in eating and exercising, but in relationships and communication, and at the end of the day, stepping into a meaningful life. Again, it's Michelle Howe. Uh, Michelle has also uh, written uh, a number of books for women, and as she mentioned in the beginning of the interview, uh, a, a book specifically for uh, women who are are single moms, not necessarily by choice, Uh, going it alone, meeting the challenges of being a single mom. And uh, you can get all of her books, uh, obviously through the normal channels of Amazon, but uh, this book, One Size Fits All, is available on the Executive Girlfriends Group book club site. And for more information about the Executive Girlfriends Group, you can go to executivegirlfriendsgroup.com. Michelle, where can they follow you and find more information out about you? 
Well, I'm, I have a blog, and I, I keep up on that, and I interact with readers all the time. It's just michellehow.wordpress.com, and I'm on Facebook and, and Pinterest, and I Twitter and all that stuff, so I'm very active on all the social media. Great, and all of those links are on your blog page? Yes, they are. Okay, terrific. Well, I so appreciate you uh, devoting your time to us on on this Friday. It has just been so interesting. And again, I I can't wait to just uh, curl up and and, uh, devote some time to a a good number of your chapters. But I'm so glad that your book also meets my busy life, which I I, uh, know was one of your intentions. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed our time together, and I hope you have a great afternoon. Well, I definitely will, and uh, we are going to end uh, the recorded portion of this call, so just bear with me one second here, and I will do that. Uh, Again, for those of you who have listened on Blog Talk Radio and on our iTunes channel, thank you so much for joining the Executive Girlfriends Group, and uh, again, we we hope to uh, see you again. Hang on one second here. With Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.